Really, really, really good to be here tonight. So good to see all of you. Uh, for those of you who don't know uh, who I am, my name is Eldon, and I'm on staff here at Central. Um, and I have the fantastic privilege of looking after our campus in Agassiz. But I'm, I'm so honored to be here tonight in Lake Arock. What a picture. Uh, th this whole service so far, what we've sung, what we've witnessed is a beautiful setup to what we're going to talk about tonight as we continue in a, in a four-part series that we started a few weeks ago uh, called The Greatest Story. It's, it's a look at the, the meta-narrative, the grand uh, the grand story of scripture from beginning to end in four parts, only we're cutting it short and doing it in three. So I don't think I'm going to do justice to, to redemption and restoration tonight, but we've already looked at creation and the fall. But uh, I think when, when uh, Jack comes back up at the end, if he does, we've got to sing that song again. What a beautiful picture of what God did for us, his incredible love for us in redeeming and restoring us. So... Um, uh, I love being on staff uh, at Central. Love it uh, a lot. This this fall, we were um, at a staff retreat. Remember that, uh, Pastor Chris? We were at our Chilliwack campus, and all of the staff gathered to listen to a little bit of teaching, also to uh, do some talking together, have some fun together, which we did at lunchtime. And so <clears throat> at lunchtime, a spontaneous game of ping pong broke out. That's, uh, that's the terminology used for those that don't take it too seriously. So table tennis is the technical term. But so we're playing ping pong, right? And I'm a little bit intimidated by the likes of, of uh, Chris Battle and, uh, and Jonathan Neufeld and Jason Wall. But they called me into this like uh, doubles game. And I, I did terrible because I hadn't played for a long time. And we started, to, we dropped right off the bat. I forget who I was playing with. I think I was with Jason on that side. Were you part of that game? I think so, yeah. And I'm like, I remember saying to myself out loud, I have to redeem myself because <laughs> this is not going well. And uh, the game did start to turn around. And we were actually up two points. And then Matt called us back to lunch. So I, I didn't get a chance to experience full redemption uh, that day. But that is, that is one aspect of redemption as we talk about it tonight that people understand. It is taking a bad situation and turning it around for good. So people say it all the time. Well, I, I, I got to redeem myself because I've done this or this hasn't gone so well, right? Uh, one of the things that uh, has been on our minds since uh, Remembrance Day where we think about redemption, deliverance, and all of that kind of thing in a unique way when we think about those who sacrifice for our freedom, turning a bad situation around literally in history as wars were fought and won, uh, is the question since November 11th is, can uh, Don Cherry redeem himself? <laughs> right? So that's, that's one way that our culture uh, actually connects with this idea of redemption. You've got a bad situation Enter uh, someone who saves the day or saves the civilization and turns it around. It's the plot of every good movie, right? Every, every good book that we read. But there's another way that we think about redemption. And I think I left my phone in my car. But most people these days have a phone. And on your phone, you've got, you've got apps where you can redeem stars or points for product, right? So I don't know if you go to Starbucks, but if you do and you use the app on your phone, you get stars. And then after a while, you can get a free drink, right? Uh, or if, you're, if you collect PC points and you have a PC MasterCard, your points add up and you, you, know, you shop at uh, Superstore or Shoppers Drug Mart or Esso, 
And then all of a sudden, one day, somebody asks you, would you like to redeem these points for uh, so much off your bill or for a certain product? And that is another way that people connect with redemption. It is something gained through something that is given. So there's an exchange that happens. And so the cultural understanding of redemption, where a bad situation is turned around, or there's an exchange of points that you earn for a product that is given to you, is, is something that tracks with the biblical meaning of redemption, but the emphasis is off. And so we're going to see as we go through uh, a few verses tonight from Ephesians chapter 1, exactly how redemption as we understand it and how the Bible teaches it are similar and yet different. So Ephesians 1, 7 through 10, I think the verses will be on the screen. You can follow along. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. A few short verses that are so packed and so rich, rich with the meaning of redemption. And so we're going to pull out that key word, which is redemption. And I want to give you a little picture of what that means biblically. And then we're going to look at all of the verses as it surrounds that. And as it surrounds that chapter and that book and the Bible. And figure out what exactly redemption all involves in about 20 minutes. <laughs> the biblical meaning of redemption is this. It means to release or to set free. There's an element of liberation, of deliverance with the implied analogy to the process of freeing a slave. In particular, buying back a slave or captive and making him or her free by payment of ransom. So keep the definition up there for a little bit. And as we look at some of the common elements between this meaning and what our culture understands about redemption, you can see some of the same elements, right? There is someone who's in trouble. There's bondage, there's captivity, and there's a need of rescue to be saved from a bad situation. Then the second part is there's an exchange that happens. Something is given so that something can be gained. Here you'll see that a payment is made. There's a ransom payment. Something's given so that there can be something taken back. So the questions for us tonight as we go through Ephesians are, who's the slave? Who, who's in trouble? Uh, who paid the ransom? And just what was that payment? And who was this rescuer, this liberator? So um, as we answer these questions by going through this text, it'll become clearer just how different our culture understands redemption uh, from how the Bible uh, explains it. <clears throat> so there's six unique emphases that we see about redemption in this text. So we're going we're gonna to actually listen to six very short sermons in about 18 minutes. Okay, this is a whole series. And so I encourage you to dig into the word a little bit more after tonight because there's a, just, it, there is so much here to understand. So everything that revolves around that word redemption. First of all, redemption is in him. In him we have redemption. 
seems obvious from the text, but I think we actually need to state the obvious and state it very clearly. Because in our culture, um, there, there is a very, very low view or maybe no understanding whatsoever of who Jesus is. And so in the church, we have to say explicitly, we need a very clear Christology. And we need to say, first of all, that redemption is in Christ. That's who the hymn is. If you back up to the first six verses of, uh, verses one through six of Ephesians, six verses refer to specifically to Jesus Christ. Christ, Christ, Jesus Christ. Six times in six verses and then verse seven. In him, in Christ, we have redemption. He is the deliverer. He's the rescuer. He's the liberator. He is the Savior who turns this bad situation around that we heard about last week as we studied the fall. The cultural understanding of redemption places a heavy emphasis on self. What I do, I need to redeem myself. The points that I earn to gain something. I earn points by shopping and therefore I deserve to get something in return. But the biblical emphasis is so different. And we need to be so clear in this. Listen, we cannot redeem ourselves. There is nothing that we can do uh, to get this uh, deliverance, this rescue, this salvation that we desperately need. We're the ones who are in slavery. And uh, uh, all, all through scripture you see how after the fall, which we looked at last week, sin as it came into the world as Eve and Adam were tempted and gave in to that command which God told them, uh, you know, don't eat of the fruit of that tree, that tree, and they did. Sin came into the world and it has affected every part of us. Our nature, the, the very core of who we are, it has affected our actions, the things that we do and say and think, and it has affected our entire world. Scripture tells us that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And so sin permeates everything. And so after the fall, when you look at the grand story of Scripture, God gave us three things. I call them um, the covenants, um, the cast, that is a group of, of, of actors in the play, uh, in the story of Scripture, and then he gave us individual characters. So first of all, God gave us covenants after the fall, after sin came into the world. He made covenants, first of all, with, with Adam, and he blew it. <laughs> he made covenant with Noah. He made covenant with Abraham, with Moses, and with David. And they weren't just for those people. They were for an entire group of people, for the nation. Some of them eternal covenants. And all of these covenants that God made with his people, uh, the, the, the ways that he expected them to live, the laws, his commands, and all of those things, and his promises, the people that he gave them to were unable to keep them, all of them. They were all broken. Every last covenant was broken. But their purpose was to point to the one who would not only fulfill all of them and who would keep all of these laws and commands perfectly, but it would point to the one who would establish a brand new covenant, one in himself. Christ said, 
that he established a new covenant which was in his blood. And we're going to look at that in a moment. Then you've got the biblical cast. These, these groups of people that God gave to try to turn things around. He gave the people prophets. He gave them priests. He gave them judges. And he gave them kings. And all of these groups of people were either rejected or they fell abysmally short in their own humanness in turning around the fall and making us right with God. It didn't work. None of them worked. So they were all fulfilled in him, in Christ. Jesus is the great high priest. He is the perfect judge. He is a king, the high king, the king of his kingdom. And he is a prophet. Then God gave specific characters within all of these things. And I'm just going to name a few real quickly, and, and I'm sure they're going to sound familiar to me as I, uh, to you as I start listing them off. Noah and the ark. Anybody familiar with that one? A righteous person comes in and saves the human race from judgment. Abraham and Isaac. A father offers up his own son as a sacrifice. Jacob and Esau. The question was, who had the more acceptable sacrifice? Joseph and his brothers, through rejection and suffering, people were saved. Moses, I'm just, just condensing these to like a few words. Moses and Pharaoh, a deliverer, frees a nation from bondage and slavery. Joshua and the battle of Jericho, a nation was delivered from the enemy. Gideon, an unlikely candidate, God calls into battle as a mighty warrior to save his people. Ruth and Boaz, uh, a kinsman redeemer, uh, turns a bad situation around where the line is in jeopardy of ending, takes Boaz or Ruth to be his wife and saves the day. David and Goliath, uh, God's chosen and anointed yet, but not yet king, not on the throne yet, but promised. He slays a giant enemy and liberates a nation that is held captive and in fear to the enemy. Daniel and the lion's den, uh, and, and his friends in the fiery furnace, through humble obedience, through submission, through prayer, an oppressive situation of captivity is turned around and thwarted. So what's the point of all these stories? We saw the point of the covenants. We saw the point of all of these different roles, these, the cast of characters. But what's the point of the stories? Is it that if we would just be more brave, more courageous, if we would just stand up to our enemies, that we can get out our slingshot and slay our enemies on the school playground that is constantly taunting us. Is that the point of these stories? No, the point of these stories is to point us to the one, the only one who can defeat the true enemies that we all face. Enemies that we can't defeat with our own strength, with our own charisma or good looks or spiritual gifts or any of these things the, the, the enemies that we face the enemies of Satan and sin and death which the Bible describes as the last enemy can only be defeated through Christ all of these characters point us to the fact that we need divine intervention and that intervention ultimately came through Jesus redemption is in him one of my favorite stories in scripture comes from Luke chapter 24 this was after Jesus had died and he had rose again and his disciples his followers were awfully dejected because they thought what kind of king is this he didn't establish a kingdom that we were expecting where is he like what happened 
And they're discussing this situation and Jesus shows up um, and he wasn't recognized by them and he's listening to this conversation and, and then so he says, hey guys, I want to just show you, it says in scripture, beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, that uh, how all of the scriptures are fulfilled in Christ, in me. And all of a sudden their eyes were open and they went, Really? All of the scriptures are about you? And then Jesus disappeared. Our text makes it really clear today exactly what Jesus wanted his disciples to know and that redemption begins and it ends in him. All of scripture points to Jesus. Everything is fulfilled in Jesus. There is no coupon. There's no app. There's no get out of jail free card. Redemption, our freedom, our deliverance, our release, our ransom, our salvation is in Christ and in Christ alone. It was one of the major things of the Reformation. Jesus Christ, by faith alone, by, in, by grace alone, by faith in Christ alone, is, we are saved. And that's why the Apostle Paul wrote to this broken church in Corinth, for I resolved to know nothing with you while I was among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is it. He's the most important. Anything else leads to what we, we've talked about it before on staff uh, and, we've, and we've preached about it. It leads to moralistic therapeutic deism, which is our own understanding of God that Jesus is there to help me <laughs> If I need him, in my own effort to leave a, live a clean and a good and, a, and, a, and a, a righteous life as far as it depends on me with good deeds, that's how I can be made right with God and Jesus will be there to help me. And that is being taught so much in churches around uh, the world, especially in North America though, that we can do this. And scripture says, no, we can't. You go on to Ephesians chapter 2 and Paul makes it really clear that without Christ, we are dead. We are dead. And the only hope that we have is Christ. And that's what baptism symbolizes. The first thing baptism symbolizes is death. And Romans chapter 6 talks about the fact that you were dead in your trespasses. And that's what, like if, if you would have left your kids under the water, it wouldn't have been a good situation. That, that leads to death. And that's what baptism uh, signifies. And we're going to talk about just the opposite in a minute. C.S. Lewis said, the son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. That's what Jesus did. The second part about redemption is this. Paul goes on to say, in him we have redemption. Redemption is for us. This is the good news. There's, there's two dangers uh, in, in our lives and in our thinking around redemption. The first is this. Why do I need to be redeemed? I've already alluded to that. I, I mean, I'm a pretty good person. I do good things for my neighbors. I, uh, you know, I, I live a good life. I try to help people. I treat others pretty good. Why, why do I need to be rescued? Why do I need deliverance? Well... The sermon last week on the fall was pretty clear why we need deliverance. In Romans 3, earlier to, an, to another church, Paul wrote this, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin affects 
all of us. And that is why we need to be redeemed as good as uh, a, a person we think that we are. But the other danger uh, with us is that we can say, I'm too bad. I've sinned too much. I'm beyond forgiveness. How could God ever forgive me? Look at all the things that I've done in my life. There, there are people here tonight, and I know it, who are living in guilt and in fear and thinking, I don't know, could God, could God love me enough to redeem me, even me? Listen to God's word to you in Romans 5. It says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And that is what baptism also signifies. It is death to sin and being raised to life. Life in Christ Redemption is in him, and when we are raised with Christ, it brings us life. So it doesn't matter how good we think we are, we're sinners. It doesn't matter how bad we think we are, like we're unredeemable. God loved us enough that while we were still sinners, while we are his enemies, he died for us, and he saved us. Timothy Keller said this. I love the way he summarized this. He said, the Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. Yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. There's confidence. I do not think more of myself or less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. When it comes to redemption, it's for us and it's in Christ and we need to think about all that he has done for us. For our sake, he made him, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Redemption is for us. Third, redemption is through his blood. In him, we have redemption through his blood. It took death to defeat what scripture calls the last enemy, which is death. Jesus put that under his feet and it took his own death in order to do, to do that. What, we, we forget that we, apart from Christ, are dead. We are dead in our trespasses and dead people do nothing. Our good works don't save us. There is nothing that saves us apart from Jesus Christ. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Why? Because he shed his blood for us. It is in the blood of a person that it, their life is represented. And when Jesus poured out his blood, his life, it brought us life. And that is why Paul said, specifically to the church in Corinth, this church that was struggling so desperately with sin. He said, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and specifically him crucified. Him crucified means that he shed his blood and that's where redemption is found. 
Back to Romans 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Jesus offered his own life and he poured out his blood in propitiation, an act of propitiation for us. You say, what is that word propitiation? Let me explain it really carefully. <laughs> Simply, if, you, if you're asked by your neighbor while they go away on holidays to look after their house plants, let's say for three weeks, and you completely forget, and those house plants all die, you might want to offer uh, to make up for the wrong that you did. You might want to offer to mow maybe your neighbor's lawn in addition to paying for new house plants. You might want to say, you know what, to make up for this because I forgot, I'm going to mow your lawn all summer. I'll do that for you. It's an act of propitiation. It's meant to regain someone's favor and to make up for something that you did wrong. Propitiation comes from a Latin verb, uh, propiter, which means to appease. And listen, through Christ's sacrifice, the fact that he took our place and suffered the penalty of death and poured out his blood for our sins, the wrath of a holy God was appeased and our sin was taken care of. It was atoned for. It was covered. Jesus did that for us. And he wasn't the one who did any wrong. He wasn't the one who killed the houseplants and he still mowed the lawn. He, he, he committed no sin. There was no offense within him. And he looked upon us. And he had mercy and compassion on us. And in that, he poured out his blood for us to appease the wrath of God. You know, it's not even accurate to say that we're saved. Like people say, what, what am I saved from? People say, well, I'm saved from myself. No, you're not. <laughs> you're not even saved from your sin, necessarily. You're saved from the wrath of God that can't look upon sin. We're sinful people and we are saved. Jesus' blood appeased the wrath of God against us because of our sin. And we're saved from his wrath. That's what Jesus did for us. That is an amazing thing. He made amends for us when he didn't have to. If you've ever taken a 12-step program, um, and I'm familiar with a couple of them, but I, I've gone through Freedom Session a bunch of times, you'll understand that making amends is the hardest step. At least it was for me. It's the hardest step to be able to go to other people and make things right. And that's what Jesus did through the shedding of his blood. He did the hard work for us. Even though he did no wrong, he's the one who made the amends. I love the way the writer of Hebrews puts this in chapter 9. The verse will be on the screen. But when Christ appeared as a high priest for the good things that have come, of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance 
since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It's his blood. Number four, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. I like the way Paul put this in Colossians. He said, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of the son, of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And listen, if there's one thing that people need, it is forgiveness. People need to be forgiven. It's one of the greatest needs that we have. And I don't know how it is in your uh, relationships. Um, Our greatest need is to be forgiven uh, by God through Christ, the redemption that comes through his blood. But in my personal relationships, (laughs) when there's brokenness and someone offers me forgiven when I've sinned, forgiveness when I've sinned, that, I don't know about you, but that, I breathe a huge sigh of relief and that is, it brings so much freedom, Right? And if you're here tonight and you know that you need to be forgiven, tonight I'm going to offer you an opportunity to breathe a huge sigh of relief through Christ who has forgiven your sin. And you need to receive that forgiveness. Um, In Mark chapter 2, there's an awesome story about Jesus who was teaching in a house and some people brought in a paralyzed man and uh, they were expecting Jesus to uh, heal him. And Jesus looked at, these, at this paralyzed man who was carried in by his friends and he looked at him and he said, uh, son, your sins are forgiven. It's not what they expected and they didn't believe it. They started nattering to themselves and they're thinking in their mind, who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus knew their thoughts and he turned around and he says, you know what, just so, the, just so that you know that the son of man, he's referring to himself, has the authority on earth to forgive sins He turns and he says, just so you know, what's easier for me to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? So Jesus said, so that you know, he turned to the man and he says, look, get up. Take your mat, roll it up and go home. And that's exactly what happened. The point, Jesus has authority on earth to forgive sins. It's a need that we all have. Number five, this is according to, Paul said, the riches of his grace. Not according to the quality of my effort or the good life that I live or the things that I do. It is according to the uh, the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Think about a gift that was so lavish that you received. Maybe at Christmas time, we're moving. Next week is Advent. (laughs) We've got like a month till Christmas. What is today? The 24th? 23rd. It's a month tomorrow till Christmas Eve. When we're all thinking about gifts, maybe some of you have already bought gifts for someone else and you've wrapped them already. Not, not me. My, my wife does that kind of thing, but not me. I don't leave it till like the 24th or the 23rd, but it's, I'm, not, I'm not a month early, right? But you're thinking about gifts already. Think about the most lavish gift that you have ever received somewhat from someone. That, and it probably made you feel uh, undeserving, unworthy. Like, why would they spend this amount on me? That doesn't even come close to how lavish God 
God's gift was for you. It doesn't even come close. God's gift, his grace is so lavish that he who had no sin took on my sin, who suffered and died and paid the ransom that I could be free. That was lavish. And in this passage, Paul talks about just how lavish that he had this planned. He had this planned long time ago. He had, in fact, he had it planned even before we would become his enemies that he would redeem us because he knew that we would mess up. We're human. In Isaiah 53, he said, it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. God had a plan to redeem us. His plan... And his grace is so lavish that Paul said, and Jesus said this too, that it doesn't matter how many times we sin, God will forgive. But Paul said it's also so lavish that I will voluntarily stop sinning because now I'll do anything for him who died for me. It was so lavish that he went in to rescue dead people. You know, you think about a movie like Saving Private Ryan. You know, they went in to rescue someone to bring a son home to his mother. Jesus went in <laughs> in what we would call a recovery mission. Jesus went in to rescue people who were completely, they were, he already knew that we were dead. And he still went in to rescue us. That's lavish. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, he had everything. Yet for your sake, my sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's grace. And finally Paul said, this thing about redemption, it is meant to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. Right now, we are living in this time where there is uh, not, uh, 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 things aren't united, but they're divided. Jesus, in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection, ushered in his kingdom. And his kingdom is here and it's now and it's being established through his church, through you and through me. Wherever we do his work, his kingdom, his kingdom is coming. That's why Jesus said, we need to pray earnestly. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, right, and, 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 and one day all of those things will be united. But right now there's this division. There's competing kingdoms. There's the kingdom of darkness, Satan's domain, and there's the kingdom of light and of life, which is the kingdom of God that breaks into the darkness. But there is a time coming through Jesus' act of redemption and through restoration when he returns again where everything will be made right. I want to read a couple of scriptures as we, as we close here. One of my favorites as well is from Romans chapter 8. Paul said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of, of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the, in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. 
Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. What are we waiting for? God's redemption and ultimately the restoration, the unification of all things is described so wonderfully in Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22, the last two chapters of the Bible, where we see the beginning, um, the beautiful creation that God made with the tree of life at the center being restored to its original state. And I can't read it all, but I want to read a couple of short verses from Revelation 21 and then 22. John wrote, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. In chapter 22, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any, anything accursed, but the, throne of God and, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. What a picture of how all things will be restored in Christ as a result of his redeeming work. Quickly, how do we respond? Just want to conclude this real fast. Three ways. Number one, we need to turn from darkness to light. <clears throat> that means to repent. Uh, repentance is a simple word. It just means to turn. In, in Acts 28, when, G, when uh, the apostle Paul met Jesus, Jesus gave him a task. And he said, now that your life is different because you've met me, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles, quote, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins, and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. We need to turn from death to life. That is the only appropriate response to the, the lavish grace that Christ put in, in effect through the death, through his own blood. Lee Strobel said this, Jesus Christ did not come into the world to make bad people good. He came into the world to make dead people live. And I want to ask you tonight, are you alive in Christ? If you're not, put your faith in him. Turn from darkness to light. Turn from Satan to the life that Christ has for you. Come to him today to be forgiven, to be redeemed. And the second thing is return. 
Um, some of you put your faith in Christ a long time ago, but you've wandered away and you're being held captive in sin by Satan in sin. And God reminded his people after he took them into captivity to turn their situation around their hearts. He said, I have blotted out in Isaiah 44, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me for I have redeemed you. Here's the reality. I've redeemed you. Now return to me. And the third thing we need to do is just simply to rejoice. And James, you're going to come up and lead us in a song. I'm going to quote a verse from that song that is so powerful and so meaningful to me. It's a, it's a song that I'm sure most of us know. It's called, How Great Thou Art. And the writer said, And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. So as we sing this last song, reflect on the message tonight about redemption and restoration. And this is an opportunity for you to respond in your heart and to tell somebody about that. Maybe tonight you want to turn for the first time from the way you've been living to Christ who has redeemed you. Maybe tonight you want to return to him because you've been far away from him and your heart is cold. Maybe tonight you're here having affirmed both of those things. You're in good relationship and you're just simply rejoicing for what he did for you. So let's stand and sing this song together.